What a word. You need to read again uh, Romans chapter 8, especially if that was you. If you're here today and that just resonated with you, um, read through that this week and remind yourself often of that truth. Um, you know, sometimes we think once we, we have a moment where we experience something and, uh, you know, we cry or we have this moment where the Lord speaks something clearly and uh, in some way we experience him that we're done, we're good. Um, but you need to use this book regularly to fight the battle for the victory that's already won. Okay, does that make sense? There's a battle that's going on every day. We've been talking about it over the last couple of weeks, the battle for our soul, for our mind, for our emotions, for our will. And as we battle that, we, we keep in mind the victory's already ours. I mean, we don't, there's, it's not like we have to wonder who's gonna win. We already won, he won, okay, it's done. But we still have to fight that war. And so I wanna encourage you, continue to use the word to do that. So uh, today, Hebrews chapter eight, we're in a message called Written, on our hearts, and I know that there was all of this talk on uh, Facebook these last couple of days that I was gonna bring my new puppy with me to church, but I did not bring him. I'm not gonna be one of those crazy dog people that take their dogs everywhere and take pictures of their dog everywhere, and you know, that's not who I am, and so I'm not gonna be doing stuff like that. You need to get that out of your mind. Um, I am just gonna be a norm, okay, pray for me, because I've already become one of those crazy people. I, uh, I sent a text message to Reg Hofer not long ago and said, you must be a prophet, because you thought you were being funny that uh, for pastor appreciation we could get a puppy, but uh, it was already in my heart back then. So it's just interesting how um, the Lord can take someone who just doesn't want an animal at all and work into his heart, get an animal for your kids. At the same time, he's working on them to try to manipulate dad to get a, an animal. Little did they know, it was already in my heart long before it was in theirs, so. Or at least this time around. It's been in their heart since the, the womb, but uh, <laughs> they finally got what they're looking for. But anyway, there he is, he's cute, and uh, you'll meet him someday. But uh, pray for us, he's a puppy, so, you know. Those of you that have had them, understand. But today, we're in Hebrews chapter eight, and this study through the book of Hebrews, uh, just as a, a quick reminder to you, this is written to Jewish Christians, people that have followed the law all their lives and the old system of following the law. That's how you're made right with God. Uh, you know, this is how we were raised. If you do what's right, then we'll be pleased with you. I mean, you may have been raised in a home similar to that. You knew if you didn't break any of the rules that everyone, you, would be, you would be loved on, you would be accepted. Um, and so that was the Old Testament. That was the law. As long as you do what's expected, then you can come into God's presence. Well, as we've learned, that's completely impossible. No one can keep the law. No one can be made right with God through the law. That's not even what the law was designed for in God's mind, even though that's what we took it to mean. And so these Jewish Christians put their faith in Christ, who is our righteousness, meaning it's like the whole law is already satisfied before we even do anything. All we gotta do is believe he did it for us, surrender ourselves to him, and then we get to walk in his righteousness. And that is a great trait. And as we talked last week, especially about this idea that uh, we, we sometimes think that 
If I'm just sorry that I'm a sinner and I accept Jesus into my life to clean it up a little bit, then we're good. But that is not biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is I am walking in this direction. I'm doing it. I'm doing things my way. I'm doing what I want, even if I'm keeping most of the commandments of this book. Okay? I'm still on my own path and there is nothing on my path that's right. And I come to a place where I recognize that and say, God, this is my path, and I commit my life to Christ, and now I start walking his path. So I'm not living a new cleaned up version of my old life, I'm living a brand new life, okay? So we can't just commit ourselves partly to Christ, we commit ourselves totally to him, and we follow him, we walk with him. And these Jewish Christians understood that. That's what they did. They surrendered themselves to to Christ. But guess what? Now they're being persecuted. Now they're being tortured. They're having things stolen from them. Their, Their family members are being taken and kidnapped and imprisoned. Their family members are being tortured. They're being put into an arena to be eaten by lions while everyone watches and cheers. I mean, that doesn't sound like it's all working out for you. How can you think God loves you if that's what's happening to you? This is exactly what they're facing and they don't know what to do. But the writer of Hebrews writes to them to say, hey, you've got to understand something here. This new covenant is not just a little bit better than the old covenant. It's not just a a slight replacement with a little tweak. This is a far superior covenant. This is so much better. And I know it doesn't look like it to you guys. I know that you're being tempted to turn your back on this new way because things aren't working out for you the way that you hope. But don't you dare turn your back on this because this thing is it this is the superior covenant and he begins to explain it to them and as we've gone over the last couple weeks we've been looking at what that means and making sure that we understand that his way is the best way we have got to settle in our hearts that God's paths is the best path if we read anything in this book and and our mind says but you know I don't feel like that's the right thing. I mean, I don't feel like that's the the best way. Write this down. God's way is always the best way, period. Even if it means life is gonna be a little bit harder for you for a while. His way is always the best way. He loves you. If that doesn't prove it, nothing else ever will. And he loves you enough to tell you, get off of your path and get on my path. I promise you, this will lead you to life. You think this way will lead you to life, but it will not. Sin's desire is to destroy you. And there may be a pleasure in sin for a season, but it will not last. It will destroy you. So get on my path because I love you. And if we settle that in our hearts, whenever there's this tug of war between doing what's right and doing what I feel like, I'll do what's right. Because I know what feels right is a lie. And I don't want to follow that path. And so then we come to Hebrews chapter 8. And we're going to read this chapter. It's a short 13-verse chapter. Here's the main point, he says in verse 1. We have a high priest, Jesus, who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even, he would not even be a priest 
since there are already priests who offer the gifts required by the law. Remember, he didn't come through the old covenant, not through Levi, he came through Melchizedek, so he wouldn't even be a priest. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. Now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry, listen to this, that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But God found fault with the people. When God found fault with the people, he said this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins." When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and it will soon disappear. And so Holy Spirit, as we study this word together today, we ask that you would do that, that you would write your word on our hearts, that it would transform who we are. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So out with the old, in with the new. The old covenant is gone, the new covenant is here. And he's telling us that our high priest, Jesus, is seated in heaven, in the the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple that was made as a copy of what was in heaven. The reason that God was so particular in giving all of those details that we like to skim over when we read the Bible in a year and we're like, well, who cares how big the, co- or the, the table is and who cares what it's made of and who cares about all of these curtains and rings and what in the world? Because it's a copy of the tabernacle that's in heaven. And so it was made as a copy here on earth. The old covenant is a shadow, a copy of what is coming. But Jesus was given a ministry that is far superior, not just a little superior, far superior to the old covenant. It was a far better covenant, not just a tweaked up covenant, far better. That's what he tells us. And it's based on better promises. But here's the thing about this new covenant. It might be based on better promises, but they are permanent promises, lasting promises, enduring promises, meaning like us here in America who want what we want and we want it now, the covenant might not always sit well with us because we expect God to come into our lives, clean everything up, remove all of the hardships and the trials, remove all of the difficult people, but if he did that, he'd have to kill you and I because we're a difficult person in someone's life. Sorry to ruin it for you today, but you, me, are difficult people in someone's life. 
And so the reason God doesn't remove all of us from the picture is because we're all part of the problem. And in my own life, I am the biggest part of the problem. My wife is not the biggest part of my problem. My kids are not the biggest part of my problem. My puppy is not the biggest part of my problem. Nothing is but me. I am my biggest part of the problem. And I've got to learn to yield myself to the Holy Spirit, to God, and allow him to complete the work that he already finished for me. So I don't have to walk around with my head held low because I'm part of the problem, I'm a terrible person. No, my righteousness is based on Christ and so even while I'm working this out, I'm so free. That's why when you hear voices of other people condemning you and putting you down, go back to him. I mean, I know there's some truth in the things that people say about us. There's always some truth, that's what makes it hurt. But it's not who we are, it doesn't define who we are. He is who we are. So run back to him. And so we want these quick fixes and we want this, this you know, easy thing, but God says, I want a permanent solution. I want to make you my people, not just you know, put a Band-Aid on you or pretend you're my people, make your life go smooth so that it just looks like you're my people. I want you to be my people. And so he allows us to go through some of these difficulties like we read in Romans chapter 8. And so he, the writer of Hebrews reminds us of all this. Then he says, he quotes this long passage from uh, verse 8 all the way down through verse 12. He quotes it, and it's actually the prophecy of Jeremiah. It's interesting, when the writer of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, he never quotes the source. He just says, somewhere it says, or the Lord has said. He doesn't say Jeremiah has said. He doesn't say David said. He says the Lord said, because everything in this book spoken by a prophet or king or anybody is the Lord. And that's what he's acknowledging. He's like, I don't care who said it, but the Lord says this. I mean, in our day and age, we're always like, well, who said that? Who, who quoted that? You got to make sure you give proper credit. Well, the Lord said all of it. In fact, if I ever say anything here, I probably borrowed it from someone somewhere, and if I ever say it, feel free to pass it on and don't tell where it came from, because if it was good, it didn't come from me. It comes from the Lord. And so he passes these words on, and he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. It says, the day is coming when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And the covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with them, with the people of Israel after those days. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me and I will forgive their wickedness and never again remember their sins." Now, the thing about Jeremiah is Jeremiah prophesies in a time of Israel when they have been told over and over and over again by countless prophets, stop disobeying the Lord. They've gone into captivity. They've been released by captivity. They've, they've been conquered by their enemies. They've been released from their enemies. And so back and forth, the Lord has done this all throughout the Old Testament. And now we come to Jeremiah and Jeremiah is prophesying they're gonna go live in Babylon for 70 years. 
And now all of these false prophets are coming and they're whipping Jeremiah. They are imprisoning Jeremiah. They're putting him in stocks. They're saying, don't listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah's lying. There's no captivity coming. Now, Jeremiah is not a yelly prophet with red face screaming at the people. He's known as the weeping prophet. There's an entire book that he wrote called the Book of Lamentations where he laments over what he's prophesying. He doesn't want the people to be destroyed. He doesn't want them to go into captivity. His heart is broken. When he sees with his eyes the destruction coming on Jerusalem, he breaks down and weeps for his city. But he promises them, when you go to captivity, when you go to Babylon, settle down, build homes, pray for the prosperity of Babylon. And the false prophets come along and say, hey, don't do this. The Lord's going to deliver you quickly. Don't settle down. Don't plant. I mean, these false prophets are just telling everybody what they want to hear. They're putting the quick band-aid on. Hey, it's okay. The Lord loves you. I mean, a gushing flesh wound. Jeremiah is trying to stitch it, and they're saying, no, just put a band-aid on it. Just put a band-aid on it. That's the difference between false prophets, false lies, Just put a Band-Aid on. God loves you. I mean, his grace, I mean, I know your life is messed up. Do what feels good. Do what you think is right. And Jeremiah keeps trying to bring him back to the covenant and says, no, follow the Lord. But here's the thing. Settle down. Pray for the peace of, of Babylon because the Lord has a plan for you. He is going to bring you back. Do you know the verse? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. That's Jeremiah's prophecy. Right on the heels of this, Jeremiah prophesies and says, ooh, how'd we get to Psalm 1 already? Jeremiah prophesies and says, uh, the Lord has plans for you, plans to give you a hope and a future. This captivity will not define you. It will be yours for 70 years, but it is not who you are. God will bring you back. And he talks about this new covenant with better promises. And he's gonna write our, his laws deep within our hearts. This is so important. His laws are gonna be on our hearts, not on our walls, on our hearts. Because we've already found out the list on the wall is impossible to live up to. The list on our hearts. And there's gonna be this intimate relationship with him. He is going to be our God and we will be his people. You gotta understand this. No one needs to teach you or you don't need to teach anyone. That doesn't mean you don't need to evangelize. It doesn't mean that we need to, don't need to teach each other anymore. What he's saying is everyone will have access to me. You're no longer gonna be in a place where you gotta go to the high priest and the high priest comes to me on your behalf. You all, every one of you, from the least to the greatest, every man, every woman, every child, you get to come to me. I will be your God and you will be my people. He's prophesying a a better covenant, an intimate covenant with us. So don't read into this and say, well, I don't need to have anyone teach me. No, that's not what he's saying. Because the New Testament says, teach one another. And we're going to read one in a little bit. Let others teach you. We need to be evangelizing our neighbors and telling them about the Lord. But the, the Lord has made access for us to be able to come into his presence. And then the last part of this covenant is, he's going to forgive our wickedness and never again remember our sins. 
Do you know how amazing that is? He is no longer counting our sins against us because of what Christ did for us. We talked about that last week. If you missed it, listen to last week's sermon. He's not counting our sins against us anymore. We do not go to hell because of sin any longer because sin has been dealt with by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's accomplished. We now will end up in hell by not putting faith in Jesus Christ. That's how completely he's put it out. Your sin, when you come to Christ, past, present, and future sin covered by the blood as long as you stay in him. In other words, stay on his path. Keep following after him. And the important part of this is that, I mean, all of those three are important, that we have intimate access to God, that he's gonna you know, make sure there's no condemnation over us while we work out our salvation. But this idea of getting his laws written on our hearts because God no longer just wants external conformity to written law. Here's the thing, guys. We can be good enough we can, put a, we can obey a list of laws and put on a front where people think we're righteous and we're good people, but inside in our hearts, there's no transformation not taking place. There's all kinds of evil lurking in there. And so God's coming not to just write the law on a piece of paper or on a stone tablet. He's gonna write it on our hearts because he wants us to be different people, not just pretend, not just act like it, not just in our best own strength and power, keep his list. He wants us to be totally transformed. And so you know what he did? He dealt with sin once and for all. So while we work that out, we don't have to worry about, oh man, I'm still making mistakes. Oh man, I'm still struggling with this. And we don't have to live in condemnation because he's already dealt with it. All we gotta do is keep walking after him, keep agreeing with him. That makes sense? And so we get our laws, his laws, into our hearts. Psalm chapter one, the righteous, they delight in the law of the Lord. They meditate on it day and night. They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. You gotta get this book in you, okay? We, we, you don't read this book and then make a list of all the things that you need to change. You need to, to read this book and every time this book exposes something in your heart, you need to say, Lord, change my heart. Not just change my words, not just change my attitude, not just change my behavior, change my heart. Write this thing on my heart so that I don't just do it, but I am it. Because this is who he is. His law is not just how God acts, it's his character. This is who God is. And as sons and daughters of God, this is who he wants us to be. Psalm 119. How can a young person or old person stay pure? By obeying your word. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your command. So I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You. write your laws on my hearts your word is a lamp to guide my feet and it's a light for my path go over to the new testament james chapter one james says understand this brothers and sisters you must all all be quick to listen slow to speak 
and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all of the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your soul. Okay, this isn't by mistake. It doesn't have the power to save your spirit. Your spirit's already been united with Christ. It's your soul that needs saving. It's your mind and your heart and your will and your emotions that need to be transformed. And if you will humbly accept the word that God is trying to plant in our hearts, it will save our souls. It won't just clean us up a little bit till we get to go to heaven. It'll completely change who we are. And that'll shine in the world. Because the world notices phony. It notices people that don't want to be something, that just want to pretend to be something. But if we get transformed, that will shine like stars. Paul said it. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law, not the law, the Ten Commandments law, not the law you gotta keep these things to get your salvation, but the right law, the perfect law that sets you free. And if you do what it says, don't forget what you heard, then God blesses you for doing it. One more from Colossians. Let the message about Christ in all of its richness fill your lives. What's the message about Christ? Well, don't forget Christ is the word the living word of God. So he is everything. Let him fill your life in all of its richness. Listen to this. Teach and counsel each other with the wisdom he gives. But I thought we wouldn't need anyone to teach us, but that's not what it meant. It meant we have access to God equally, but we need to teach and admonish one another. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do it as a representative of him. Why? Because you're his son and daughter. And so everywhere you go, you are a son and daughter of God representing him. And we don't wanna do what doesn't represent him. I don't do that because I I, want to please God. I don't do that because I want to earn my salvation. I do it because I want to represent him to a world that doesn't know him. I want them to see how loving he is. I want them to see how perfect he is and how holy he is. And they're going to see it as he transforms me. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to tell them about the life-changing power of God if I'm living basically the same life they're living. That makes sense. We need to be transformed. We need to get his word deep in our hearts. And the problem is it looks the same on the surface. It looks like an open Bible and a cup of coffee. That's what it looks like. How do I know that the word's getting written on my heart and not just, you know, surface in my mind? I mean, the person who has it written on their hearts and the person who has it just surface in their lives, both have their Bible open and both have a cup of coffee. It looks the same. They both go to church on Sunday and listen to sermons. They both listen to the same podcasts. They listen to the same books. They read the same books. How do we know that the word is getting into our hearts and not just sitting on the surface? Well, we ask the Lord to put it in our hearts. We don't just read as much as we can in a day. When we come to a place where we recognize, 
God, that, or when we open it to begin with, we say, Holy Spirit, show me anything in here that's lurking in my heart today because I know that my heart deceives me, so show me, that. point it out to me. And when he points it out to me, I, I, I work with him and I say, write that on my heart. Don't just help me remember this so I change, but change who I am. And we ask God to make it a work of his grace in our lives. When Jesus was teaching the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, look what he says. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, uh, you know, in our day and age, lust is not just a man problem, okay? Uh, Like Jesus is talking about. It goes both ways. But here's what Jesus is saying. I could think, you know, I'm a good person, I'm a good husband because I have never committed adultery with a woman. I have stayed in this relationship with my wife and God comes along and says, you know, you're, you're fooling yourself because in your heart is lust, is adultery. The only problem is you just haven't had a means to exercise that. And if the right opportunity came along, you would fall prey to that if you don't deal with what's in your heart. And so I want to deal with what's in your heart, not so that you can just say, well, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. I want to be transformed from the inside out. And so Jesus tells us what it looks like. If you lust in your heart, meaning, men, if you look at a woman and you begin to undress her with your eyes, and you might think, well, she's dressed inappropriately or provocatively, and I I looked, but I looked back, and I studied, and I tried to imagine what she, you've committed adultery in your heart, and that's the problem. And God wants to deal with that. He doesn't want us to put our heads down in shame and be like, I'm this terrible person. No, you're you're a guy. And you need to know that that's what lurks in your heart. And God, God sent his son to write his law on your heart so that you don't do that. And so he doesn't want you to just win the battle sometimes. He wants to change you so that the battle goes away. And I don't know that it ever goes away, but it at least gets better as we are made into his image in our society today it's it's okay in some christian circles to look at pornography it's okay in some christian circles to be involved in some type of sexual activity as long as it's not going all the way it's not what this book teaches us this is not what god says and anything else is a lie and it's a deception and it's what's in our hearts and it needs to get dealt with that's what jesus taught us Now, for those of you that think you got that one, Master, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, you've heard your ancestors say don't murder. Well, hallelujah. Anyone in here ever murdered anyone? Oh, good. We are such good people. We have never murdered anyone. Okay, have you ever walked past someone and ignored them when you saw them? Ouch. You're guilty of murder. Have you ever spoken against someone that wronged you and you were just it was just irking you and so you slandered them to someone else? You ever called anybody an idiot? That's what's in our hearts. And so it's not enough to just not murder and it's not enough to just even keep my mouth from slandering people. I've gotta deal with what's in my heart and what's in my heart is so, so much selfishness and so much anger and so much hatred and so much, ugh, and as long as uh, you know, things are going smoothly in my life, I can live with this idea that, hey, I'm a good Christian. And then things get a little rocky, and we're like, Bleh, and then we blame the rocks. 
No, it's not the rocks. It was what's in, in our hearts all the time. We just got good at, at hiding it, pretending. But God loves us way too much to let us be in that. And so he's gonna allow everything to get exposed in our lives. Because here's a passage of scripture that the Lord really has worked in my heart. And not worked, past tense. Is working in my heart presently. And uh, man, just a powerful reminder The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. It is desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? (laughs) But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives and give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Now, please don't read that as if God is up in heaven um, just waiting to punish us for the wickedness in our hearts. He is a God who rewards. He loves to reward. And on judgment day, he wants nothing more than to open the storehouses of heaven and lavish everything he can on you. And so he will not allow the wickedness that lies in our hearts to stay there. He's gonna bring it to the servant. He already knows it's there. He sent his son with full knowledge of what was in our hearts. He did that for us. And we don't even know what's in our hearts, but he has seen it all. And every once in a while, just when you start thinking, I'm a pretty good Christian, I'm working this out pretty good, done pretty well, he just peels back one more layer and you're like, oh. Anybody else ever felt, am I the only one? Because he wants to clean our hearts. You ever notice that children who grow up in extremely legalistic environments have a tendency to rebel because it's, it's not just written on our hearts. Yep. Why don't we, I want you to just get into some, some groups around and just begin to pray. Uh, pray for, uh, pray for Jean, pray for Dorothy. Let's just take a moment and begin to pray.